This morning I'd like to begin with a question, and the question is simply this. What sort of example are you? What sort of example are you? Are are you setting the sort of example that other people should attempt to emulate? Or are you setting a bad example, which, well, if nothing else, can serve as a lesson for how we shouldn't act? You know, more specifically, as, a, as we uh, consider the Christian faith, you know, the, the question is this, are you striving to become an excellent example of what it means to be a born-again believer? Or are you just a good example of what it means to be a bad example? With these questions in mind, we're going to spend our time today considering what it means to be an excellent example. For the sake of clarity, I should take a moment to point out that the word example, well, in a positive sense, this word refers to those who are worthy of imitation. Those who are an excellent example are worthy of imitation. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the excellent example is a believer who is a fervent follower. Secondly, we'll learn that the excellent example is a believer who is also a devout discipler. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider how the excellent example is a believer who is a steadfast server. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we find Paul, he's commending the Christians there in Thessalonica about their excellent example. And as you make your way to the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, well, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It will first help us to remember that Paul began this epistle by assuring the original recipients about the evidence of their election. Not only that, but he also reminded them about the way that they had received the gospel of grace which he had preached in their presence. Well, now here in our text today, we find Paul, he's continuing to commend the Christians there in Thessalonica, and he does this uh, by helping them to know that they had become excellent examples for those who would then follow in their footsteps. And with this as the focus, I want to consider our own lives in light of their excellent example. With this as our focus, if you would look with me here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to begin reading there at verse 6. Here Paul declares... And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica about their excellent example. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word example, which is found there in verse 7, is actually translated from the Greek word typos. And typos, this is actually the basis for our English words type and typology. In the context of the Christian faith, this word was used of the believer whose life was worthy of imitation. Worthy of imitation. 
That's what it means to be an excellent example. And, and with that being the case, you know, Paul here, he was actually commending the Christians there in Thessalonica for the way that they had become believers whose lives were worthy of imitating. Now, in order to better understand their example, I want to back up and take a closer look at our text today. And with that, let's look at Paul's compliment found there in verse 6. There Paul praises the original recipients of this epistle, and he did this by declaring, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. Now, I want to stop right there. I want to take a moment to consider this compliment You see, according to Paul here, the Christians there in Thessalonica were excellent examples. And the reason why? Well, it's because they had become fervent followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, rather than following after their fleeting feelings, instead of following after their fallen flesh, the original recipients of this epistle, they were following the leading of the Lord. Not only that, but they were also following the leaders of the Lord As a matter of fact, notice again in verse 6, here again Paul declares, you became followers of us and of the Lord. In other words, the Christians there in Thessalonica had not only become excellent examples who were following the leading of the Lord, but they were also excellent examples because they were following the leaders of the Lord. Yeah, they were following the leading of the Lord, by following the leaders of the Lord. And in order to better grasp their excellent example, well, it's important for us to realize that the Lord Jesus raises up leaders who have been appointed and anointed, even ordained, to oversee every Christian congregation. Yeah, that's that's right. The Lord has appointed and anointed and ordained the pastors of the church to lead the congregations that they shepherd. Uh, and listen, the, 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 there, there are many people out there who claim to be ordained, and maybe they are. Maybe they went to some seminary and got an ordination certificate, or maybe they just went online and found one of those places where you can get you know, a religious ordina- or ordination. And Listen, anybody can have an ordination certificate, and that doesn't mean that they're actually ordained by the Lord. You see, the Lord doesn't hand out ordination certificates. No, he simply appoints and anoints and ordains those that he raises up to lead. And so with that, it's important for us to recognize that the Lord is calling us to follow him by following the leaders that he's appointed and anointed and ordained. The Lord has called every Christian to follow those who have been called to lead them. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in Hebrews 13. It's verse 17 where he writes, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Christian, listen, the believer who wants to become an excellent example, we must learn how to follow the Lord, yes. But this includes learning how to follow the leaders that the Lord raises up. The the Christian who wants to be an excellent example must learn how to follow the leaders that the Lord is raising up to rule over each church. And I get it, this is something that most of us don't want to hear. Many of us do not like the idea of being submissive to another person. Well, who are you? Why do you get to lead? Who made you, you know, judge, Judy, and executioner? 
Yeah, we, we struggle with that. Why? Well, well, because we're raised to think that well, we're autonomous Americans and we don't submit to nobody. I realize that most of us struggle with the idea of being submissive. It took me several years as a new believer, you know, to, to realize that the Lord was calling me to submit to the leadership of my pastor before I was sent out. Yeah, I struggled with that because before I came to Christ, I, I wasn't ready to, to submit to anybody. Knowing that we all struggle with this idea of being submissive, it's still important to understand that those who want to become excellent examples in the church must learn how to follow the Lord by following the leaders the Lord has raised up. In order to further grasp the way that Christians have been called to become followers of the Lord and his leaders, well, I should take a moment to point out that the word followers, which is found there in verse 6, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who mimic or impersonate another person. We oftentimes see this happening with little kids, you know. The, if you've ever been into one of these little, you know, mimic wars with kids, you know, you'll say something, and then they'll mimic you, and then you'll say something else, then they'll repeat that, and they start impersonating you, and it's, it's all kind of funny. And, and yeah, this is one way that this word could be understood. In the most positive sense of this word, the follower is a person who is doing their best to imitate those who are excellent examples of Christ Jesus. It's for this reason that the scholars who created the English Standard Version of the Bible, they render the Greek in verse 6 in this way, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You became imitators of us and the Lord. I, I like the way that Paul explains all of this in Philippians chapter 3 because there we find him using the same word. It's verse 17 where Paul declares, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. In other words, those who want, uh, want to become excellent examples, those, those of us who want to become believers who are excellent examples for others to follow, well, we should first follow in the footsteps of the leaders who have become excellent examples of Christ Jesus. Just to be clear, though, listen, I'm not suggesting that we give up the unique aspects of our own individuality or personality. I get it. We live in a day and an age where everybody wants to be a special snowflake. You know, we all want to be the unique individual, individ, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, p- uh, people who, who are even sold this in our advertising. You know, the, uh, if you drive this car, you're different. What, different from all the other people driving the same car? Yep, yep, you're unique. You're special. I get it. We all want to be unique and special. And I don't think the Lord wants to rob us of that. Because we all have our own personalities. We all have our unique you know, skills and talents. And, and we are all special in that sort of way. And yet, the Lord wants to conform us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. The Lord wants to transform our lives by helping us to become more like Jesus, which only enhances the unique individuality of who we are. With this as the goal, we'd all do well to learn how to follow those who are following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. And in order to further grasp this goal, I want to continue to consider the excellent example of those who originally received this epistle. If you would look with me again there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, we'll back up and begin reading again at verse 6. Here Paul declares, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Here in this verse, we find Paul, he's actually saluting these saints for the way that they had received the word. 
In other words, they accepted the teachings of Paul, and Paul was teaching them what? The word of God. He was teaching them the word, and they had received it by faith. They embraced his doctrine as they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's even more is that they allowed the word of God to transform their lives. In this way, they became excellent examples of believers who were abiding in the word of God. In order to further grasp my point, I want to back up and begin reading again here at 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6. Here again, Paul declares, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's helping us to understand that the Christians there in Thessalonica, they were excellent examples. The reason why? Well, it's because they were willing to endure every affliction as they followed the doctrines of God's word. You see, the doctrines of God's word was, you know, they were leading these people to begin to live a a different life. They, They were being changed. They were being sanctified. And you better believe that this process of sanctification was setting them apart from the unbelievers there in Thessalonica. And as a result, they were being persecuted. They were being persecuted by by the unbelievers within their sphere of influence. But rather than allowing the afflictions of persecution to keep them from following the word of God, they became excellent examples who continued to live their lives uh, according to God's word. And listen, they were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the affliction. They continued to fervently follow the Lord and his leaders. They continued to follow the teachings of God's word in the midst of affliction. And in the midst of all of this, they were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now think about that for a moment. These believers had become excellent examples because the pain of persecution could not quench the joy of the Holy Spirit. And rather than allowing affliction to stop them from following the Lord and his leaders... They instead endured the pain of persecution as they passionately and fervently followed the instructions of God's word. And in the light of their example, I would just cry out, God help us. God help us. Because I guarantee that we are not in any way suffering the pain of persecution. Yet, how many times is it just kind of like we wake up on Sunday, it's like, well, I've got a headache. I don't think I can go to church today. It's so hard. I got a splinter. I don't think that I can actually do a devotion this morning. The pain of it all, the affliction. Yeah, so many Christians are so quick to just give up on following the Lord because of some little hiccup in their life. And that's not a good example. It's not a good good example for our friends or or our, our children. It's not a good example for the unbelievers who are looking at our lives. And with that, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking this, am I a fervent follower? Do I have a passionate desire to follow the Lord? And am I filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of affliction? Or am I still just following my feelings as I travel the path of least resistance? 
with these questions in mind, I want to remind you of the challenge that Paul presented in Hebrews chapter 6. It's in Hebrews 6, verses 11 and 12, where Paul declares, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Christian, listen. Those who want to become excellent examples should follow in the footsteps of those who are excellent examples. If you want to be an excellent example, follow someone who is an excellent example. And just to be clear, the believers who are excellent examples are those who are following Jesus according to the truth of his holy word. They aren't sluggish in serving the Lord. They're not looking for every out to, you know, just turn away from God. But they are with faith and patience, inheriting the promise as they continue to to follow the Lord. The believers who are excellent examples are those who joyfully abide in the word of God. And yes, even when doing so results in the pain of persecution. With their example before us, let's become those diligent disciples who are fervently following the Lord. And this brings us to our second point, because listen, the excellent example is not only a fervent follower of the Lord, but the excellent example is also a devout discipler. And to explain what I mean by this, let's turn our attention now back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to back, back up and begin reading again there at verse 6, because here Paul declares, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you be Came examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's once again commending the Christians there in Thessalonica. And and he's commending them for becoming these excellent examples who were sounding forth the word of God. That's right. Uh, They were not only fervent followers of the word of God, but they were also repeating the truths that they had been taught. In other words, they were excellent examples who were echoing the biblical instructions that they had received. I like the way that the scholars who created the English, the New English translation, they they render verse 8 in this way. For from you... The message of the Lord has echoed, echoed, echoed. All right. The message of the Lord has echoed forth, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Reports of your faith in God have spread so that we do not need to say anything. Paul's like, we don't have to say anything because you keep echoing in your testimony. And as we consider the way that they were echoing or repeating the truth of God's word, we must not fail to notice that they were, they were not only proclaiming the word of God there in Thessalonica, but they were also presenting the word of God throughout the entire region of Macedonia. And what's even more is they were also reaching people south of Macedonia in this region known as Achaia. Finally, we should notice that there were reports of their faith in every place, Paul says. Paul's basically saying, everywhere I go, I'm hearing about the Christians back in Thessalonica. 
without debate, the Christians there in Thessalonica were making an impact on their world. And in order to understand their influence, I want to take a closer look at the statement that Paul made there in the middle of verse 8, because there he declares, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Your faith has gone out. Now that word faith, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who have a confident conviction that something is true. We're not talking about some sort of blind, like, I don't know, but maybe I hope so, faith. We're not talking about that. We're, we're talking about the full assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. In the context of the Christian faith, the Greek word translated faith is used of those who have a confident conviction that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And what this means is that those who trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus have obtained eternal salvation by faith. It's by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior that we obtain eternal salvation. I like the way that the Apostle John put it. It's in 1 John chapter 5. There he declares, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. I love that. Those who place their faith in the only begotten son of God, in his death, in his burial, And in his resurrection, we've been set free from the condemnation which will eventually be poured out upon this wicked world. Not only that, but our faith in Jesus Christ is the confident conviction that enables us to walk in his victory. This is the victory that our Savior secured for us when he died for our sins on the cross. Through his death, He provides believers with the forgiveness of sins. And in this, we have victory over this world. And now those who are walking in the victory of the Lord, well, we have a faith that leads us into a life of discipleship. To prove my point, let's take a closer look at the statement that Paul makes here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you would, let's look again in the middle or the second half of verse 8. Here he declares, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Now, in order to grasp the way that the faith of these believers was making an impact on the world around them, well, it'll help us to know that the phrase translated gone out, it's used of those who go forth. They've gone out. You know, when we leave the church here today, we've gone out of this building. In a metaphorical sense, the same uh, Greek word that's translated gone out, it speaks of those who go forth from a private setting into a public setting. Their faith had gone from the privacy of their own hearts and homes and it had gone out into the public world. And as we consider the context of this passage, well, we know that the Christians there in Thessalonica, they themselves were actually going out into the world in order to share their faith so that they could accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. Now, just to be clear, I'll remind you that the great commission of Christ Jesus, it's spelled out in Matthew chapter 28, it's verses 19 and 20, where Jesus declares, go therefore 
and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Jesus didn't say, stay, therefore, and keep your faith to yourself. He said, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And as we consider this command to go into the world, there's no doubt in my mind that the Christians there in Thessalonica, they had a true faith that was leading them to go and accomplish this great commission. And in this way, they became excellent examples as they reached the people in the world around them with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. At the same time, it's also important for us to notice that the great commission of Christ, it's... It's a plan of not making converts, but Christians who become disciples. This was precisely the point that Jesus was making when he again declared, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now this phrase, make disciples, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who teach others so that those being taught might become the students or the pupils of another. And so while it's true that the Great Commission begins with the gospel message, of course we have to preach the gospel of grace so that someone might become a convert. It's in that process of conversion when the Christian then ought to become a disciple. We've been called to go out and make disciples. And so those who embrace the gospel of grace by faith in Jesus Christ should then become those believers who are being discipled by those who are more mature in the faith. Not only that, but the great commission of Christ Jesus also includes by implication that those who become disciples will then eventually become believers who are disciplers. That's the goal. How do you know if you've made a disciple? Well, they'll... Be discipled until they are disciplers. The true disciples of Christ are those who are being discipled to become disciple makers. And with that being the case, there should be no doubt in our minds then that those who want to become those believers who are excellent examples for others to follow, well, we should make sure that we are receiving the discipleship that we need so that we can become disciplers. I like the way that Paul put it in his second letter to Pastor Timothy. It's actually in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul declares, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. From this, we can see that, you know, the, that, that Paul was helping Pastor Timothy to understand that it was his responsibility to spend time discipling the people in his congregation so that every congregant might become a Christian who is able to go out and then disciple others. And what this means then is that every believer who is a devoted disciple should be devoted to discipleship so that we can become an excellent example for others to follow. And in that, we become disciplers. With this as the goal, we would do well to follow the instructions that Paul presented to another pastor. His name is Titus, and it's in Titus chapter 2 where Paul gives uh, Pastor Titus a a formula 
for discipleship within the church, and it's Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, where Paul says, As for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's encouraging Pastor Titus to make sure that uh, the mature members of their church those who were older believers were actually taking the time to disciple those who were younger in their faith. And according to Paul, we see here that the older women were supposed to disciple the younger gals. And at the same time that the older men were supposed to disciple the younger guys. Paul's not calling older men to go disciple young gals. And he's not calling the older ladies to go and disciple the young boys. No, instead, he's, he's, he's giving us this understanding that there is a gender-specific form of discipleship that ought to be happening within the church, and it's for this reason that we here place a strong emphasis on gender-specific discipleship, which happens in our men's and our women's ministries. Christian, listen, if, if you're thinking to yourself that I'm not ready to go and disciple other people, I encourage you, plug in and receive the discipleship that we all need. We need to become disciples so that we can then become disciplers. In this way, as you step forward to receive discipleship, you're actually allowing the devout disciples in our church to disciple you, and this gives them the opportunity to be disciplers. And at the same time, they're helping you to become believers who are able to disciple others. And as we become devout disciplers, we're also becoming excellent examples who are worthy of imitation. Now this brings us to our third point, because listen, excellent examples are not only fervent followers, and we're not only devout disciplers, but excellent examples within the church are also steadfast servers. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's turn our attention now back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I want to draw your attention there to verse 9, because here Paul declares, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's continuing to commend the Christians there in Thessalonica, and the reason why was because they had become servants of the living and true God. Now that word serve, which is found there in the middle of verse 9, it's actually translated from a Greek word which was used of those who submit themselves to the authority of another. The same word was also used of those who subject themselves to a superior with yielded obedience. And in this case, we see that the Christians there in Thessalonica, they were submitting themselves or subjecting themselves to the authority of the true and living God. 
We should also notice that they had turned away from idols in order to serve the living and true God. And just to be clear, the word idols found there in the middle of verse 9, it's translated from a Greek word which was used to describe the images of the heathen gods which were worshipped uh, by, uh, by those in the Gentile world. Uh, for example, you might not know this, but there in Thessalonica, uh, there was a uh, temple there to the goddess Aphrodite. The temple included a, a statue of this false goddess, Aphrodite or Venus. But, but also, they, they also started including imperial statues of Roman emperors as emperor worship became a thing uh, there in the Gentile world. With all this in mind, I have no doubt that there were Christians there at that church in Thessalonica who prior to their Christian conversion probably spent a whole lot of time at that temple. I'm guessing that before their Christian conversion, that that many of these people who received this epistle had been worshiping and serving the statues that were found there at that temple. Not only that, but listen, at at this day and age, it wasn't uncommon for the Gentiles there in the first century to to have idols in their own homes. They'd have little idols, you know, uh, of the gods that they preferred. Maybe they didn't like Aphrodite so much. Maybe they wanted to worship another god, so they would have a little statue in their own house. Some would have shrines dedicated to their false gods. But at at, at the end of the day, you know, they were simply worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man or birds or four-footed animals or creeping things or an amalgamation of these sorts of things. And you see many of the ancient gods oftentimes would have like the the body of a human, you know, and the, the head of a, you know, duck or something. I don't know. You'd find this mixture of of critters, you know, that they had put together and created a statue, and they'd set up a statue in their backyard, and and then the the birds would poop on it, so they'd have to clean their god, you know, often. And listen, if you have to wipe bird poop off of your god, it's not a god. It's not a god. If it can't take care of itself, and this is no god, it's a false god. And I think they knew it because when they heard the gospel of grace, they turned away from their idols. And it's there in the middle of verse nine where we learn that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That word turned found there in the middle of verse nine is translated from a Greek word which speaks of conversion. They were converted from a false faith to a true faith. The same Greek word was also used of those who turn away from something in order to turn towards something. And that's what happened. They turned away from their idols and they turned to a true God who is alive, our creator. And it's here in this context where Paul described the way that the Gentile Christians there in Thessalonica, they turned away from the idols that they were worshiping so that they could serve. They had been serving idols. They had been, you know, there at the, the, the temple of Aphrodite serving false idols. And, and, and now they're serving the true and living God. They were submitting to the God who truly exists. And they did this by serving the Lord. 
You should also notice that this was something that Paul had heard. Understand that, you know, Paul went on, you know, missionary journeys where he went out planting churches and he would lead people to Jesus and then establish a church and then move on down the road and do that all over again. He was, you know, in the apostolic work of missionary uh, endeavors at that point in time. And everywhere he went, he heard about the conversion of these Christians. He heard about the way their lives had changed. As a matter of fact, notice with me again there in verse 9, Paul again here declares, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, Paul was informing the original recipients of this epistle that their decision to turn from idols and to uh, the true and living God had become an example to others, so much so that the whole world was talking about them. They had become excellent examples as they became steadfast servants of our Savior. Their lives had completely changed. And the same thing should be true of every true convert to Christ. Our lives should change in such a way that the people around us cannot deny it and even talk about it. Much like these Thessalonians who stopped serving their idols at the pagan temple and started serving the Lord, you know, these, these people, their lives changed as they used their time and their talent and their treasures to go and serve our Savior there within the, the fellowship of faith in Thessalonica. And would it be to God that our lives would be changed in the same way by faith in Jesus Christ? We should also notice the way that Paul described them there in verse 10. It's there where we learn that they had also decided to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now that word wait, as Paul spoke about the way they were waiting for the son of God, that word wait is translated from a Greek word which was used of those who are awaiting the arrival of another. I should also point out that this word rendered wait, the original Greek word included the added notion of patience and trust. Simply put, the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica, they were patiently waiting for the day when our risen Redeemer would deliver those who trust in him from the wrath, which is still yet to come. They were waiting for Jesus who notice in the, in the end of verse 10, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now just to be clear, the wrath that Paul here is referring to is going to start being poured out during the time of tribulation. And to prove my point, I want to consider something that John the Apostle, the Apostle John revealed in the book of Revelation. And so if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. And as you make your way to the sixth chapter of Revelation, I just want to take a moment to point out that there are specific events which will take place within this seven-year period of time that we call the tribulation. It's also you know, called the, the time of Jacob's trouble or the 70th week of Daniel. There are different uh, titles that we use for this time period. But it's a seven-year period of time uh, in, uh, during which the tribulation will occur. And while this time of tribulation will culminate in the second coming of Jesus Christ... It's also important to understand that there are several successive events that take place throughout these seven years, which begin with the opening of seven seals. And the seventh seal actually contains then seven trumpet judgments. 
And the seventh trumpet judgment then contains seven bowl judgments. And it's here in Revelation chapter 6 where we find John. He's zeroing our attention in on the day when the sixth seal is opened. Notice with me, beginning at verse 12. Here John writes, I looked when he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Here in these verses, we learn about this dreadful day when the wrath of God begins to be poured out upon this planet. And according to John here, this takes place at the time when the sixth seal is opened. The sixth seal will then be followed by the seventh seal. The seventh seal contains seven trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bowl judgments. And so uh, it just gets worse and worse and worse from that point forward. But as we consider how the wrath of God is being poured out at the time when the sixth seal is opened, we can be certain that the wrath of God is being poured out at some point in time in the beginning of the tribulation. It's pretty early on at the time of the sixth seal when the wrath of God begins to be poured out upon this planet. As we consider the way that the people will cry out for the mountains to fall on them so that they can be hidden from the wrath of God, uh, I can assure you, you don't want to be here at this point in time. And with that being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that the servants of our Savior, those who are patiently waiting for Jesus Christ, well, according to Paul, we will be delivered from this day of wrath. We will be delivered from the wrath of God. I like the way that Paul explains it later on in, the, in this book of the, uh, 1 Thessalonians. It's actually 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul declares this. He says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? Christian, God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will escape the wrath which is going to be poured out during the time of tribulation. And as we continue to make our way through this epistle, we're going to soon see that this includes the believers who will be caught up in the rapture of the church just before the time of tribulation begins. Hopefully, uh, this is tomorrow. But, uh, but, but if not, you know, we, we can at least rejoice uh, in knowing that we will be saved from the wrath of God. Why? Well, because Jesus has already received the wrath of God on our behalf. It was there on the cross where Jesus received the wrath that we deserve so that we could be saved from the wrath of God. 
And now we can rejoice in knowing that he's going to deliver us from the wrath, which will eventually be poured out on this planet there at the time of the sixth seal. And his wrath will continue to be poured out in the lake of fire forevermore. That being the case, I encourage every Christian to become excellent examples who are worthy of imitation. And we do this by becoming those believers who are serving our Savior as we patiently wait for the day of redemption. With this as the goal, we, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I a steadfast servant who is accomplishing the great commission of Christ Jesus? Or am I still a disciple who is distracted with the idols that I continue to serve? Am I submitting my life to my Messiah or am I still serving my desire for the worthless things of this world? And with these questions in mind, let's consider the, ex- uh, the, the most excellent example of all. And I'm not talking about Bill or Ted. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And specifically, if you would, let's turn to Matthew chapter 20. As you make your way to the 20th chapter of Matthew's Gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that the title Christian actually comes from the Greek word Christianos, which means little Christ. Little Christ. What this means is that the person who claims to be a Christian, they're effectively insisting that they themselves are following in the footsteps of Christ Jesus so that they've become imitators of Christ. Now, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, then I encourage you to consider the excellent example of Jesus Christ. And with that, look with me here at Matthew chapter 20. I want to draw your attention to verse 25, because here we learn that Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christian, listen, the Lord Jesus didn't come to be served. No, instead he came to serve. He he came and, and offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He served us in this way so that we might be saved. And in light of his excellent example. Well, those who trust in Jesus should then begin to emulate his example. And I don't mean to suggest that we're saved by serving the Lord. Of course not. But if we have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, then we should also begin to follow in his footsteps. We should become steadfast servants who are accomplishing the great commission of Christ Jesus in the same way that he modeled becoming a servant to us. And in in this way, He will help us to become excellent examples. I like the way that Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2. It's there where he says this. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. In other words, the divine nature of Jesus Christ in eternity past, decided to set aside his glory so that he could put on human frailty and then come and offer himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. 
And as we consider the way that he decided to humble himself in this way by taking on the form of a bondservant, we must not fail to notice that Paul then encourages every born-again believer to maintain the same mindset. The mindset that led Jesus to set aside his glory to become a bondservant is the same mindset that we ought to have in our daily life. The born-again believer who has placed their faith in the cross of Christ should follow in the footsteps of Jesus by becoming humble servants of our Savior. And in light of the Lord's excellent example, we should take a moment to examine our own lives once again by asking, am I a steadfast servant of our Savior? Am I actively accomplishing the great commission of Christ Jesus? Has my life changed in such a way that the people around me are just amazed at at, at the difference? Or am I still just serving the idols that I've placed upon a pedestal of personal goals? Just to be clear, it's important for us to understand that an idol can be anything. It doesn't have to just be some statue of some Gentile god. An idol is anything that we've allowed to become more important than God. Could be anything. Could be your favorite sports team. Could be your kids. I was going to say it could be a mountain bike, but let's not get crazy here. I mean, let's, let's be careful. Yeah, an idol could be anything. Our spouse, our job, our position. An idol is anything that we've placed on a higher pedestal than God. And it's sad to say that there are many born-again believers who are not steadfast servants, and the reason why is because something else is more important than Jesus in their life. And with that, I would encourage every Christian to follow in the footsteps of the excellent examples of those believers there in Thessalonica by turning from those idols. If there is something in your life that is keeping you from serving the Lord, turn away from the idol so that you can become a servant of the living God. In this way, we become excellent examples who are worthy of imitation. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to recap our outline by reminding you that those who are excellent examples are fervent followers of the Lord and the leaders that the Lord has raised up. The fervent follower is one who receives the word of God and then begins to align their life to what it says. Those who are excellent examples are also devout disciplers who are accomplishing the great commission of Christ Jesus. The devout discipler is someone who uh, was devoted to discipleship so that they could become a discipler of others. And finally, those who are excellent examples are steadfast servants who have set aside their own so-called glory so that we can humbly serve our Savior Jesus. With all this in mind, I encourage every Christian to realize we will never become excellent examples in the power of our flesh. We will never become excellent examples in the power of our flesh. I know what I did in my life before I came to Christ. And I was a really good example of how not to live. I was an excellent example of what it looks like to be a bad example. And I have no doubt that we've all struggled with these things. 
But we will never be the sort of example that we ought to be in the power of our own flesh. And it's for this reason that I encourage every Christian to realize that we don't have the strength necessary for becoming good examples. Those who are in the flesh can only be a good example of what it means to be a bad example. And with that being the case, I encourage you in closing, let's walk by faith with Jesus Christ. Because as we walk by faith with Jesus, the Holy Spirit then begins to empower us to live in the way that we ought to. And as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, then he enables us to become those believers who are excellent examples. Let's pray.